It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel or to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Lord, this is your word. May my words ultimately be your words, and this message be your message. Help us to have ears to hear what your Spirit wants to speak to our hearts about this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I forgot to mention, in your bulletin, um, you should have got a baby shower half sheet. Um, So there's no time on there. Um, And I'm pretty sure the one who wants to have the baby shower would love everybody to to be here at a specific time. Um, Right, Anna? Uh, yeah, it would help. Um, so um, it's at 11, and there's another request as well. If you are planning on coming to the baby shower, um, bring some teacups. Um, if you have teacups, I don't have any of those, but you might. Um, but uh, yeah, anyways, um, if you need more information, you can talk to Hannah, right? Okay, all right. Um, so... Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 11. We're going to be jumping from this passage to another passage in Acts chapter uh, 4. But just be in in the the loo with the fact that we'll be in the book of Acts primarily today. Um, But growing up, um, I grew up as an only child. I didn't have siblings. And some of you are like, oh, now that makes sense. Um, Um, and, and I didn't have the struggle that some of you who have siblings had when you were growing up with sharing your toys, right? But God has a sense of humor when he decided to give me three kids. Um, <laughs> fast forward to my early 30s, having age, uh, kids age 2, 7, and 14, um, there's a constant battle of sharing, right? Um, my youngest, for example... I can't use my 14-year-old anymore because I've been reprimanded. I've used her in a sermon before. I'm not allowed to again. Um, We'll see about that. Um, I can't use my 8-year-old either because, well, I just, I guess I can't. But my 2-year-old, we can go with my (laughs) 2-year-old. He has been in this phase where if you touch anything of his, even a sock, okay, even a dirty sock, You'll no doubt hear the words, that's mine. Uh, You probably hear it from grandkids and nieces and nephews. But listen, in my time of ministry, I've come to realize that many people who are in ministry have the same mentality as my son. It's mine. The ministry that I'm over is mine. Uh, This church is mine. Youth group is mine. Listen, we've... Uh, greatly, we have that greatly mistaken. None of this is ours. 
We've become possessive over the ministries that God has us in. You see, sometimes when God wants to do something in a church, he comes and and often through people or through uh, his word or through your time in prayer, and he, he wants to do something. He wants to do something in the ministry that you may be in. And, and many times the leader or the pastor or the ministry person, they'll respond to the Holy Spirit with, that's mine. You can't touch it. Maybe not verbally, but in the way they respond through their actions or the way they, 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 they have their, their body language even. It, it doesn't say that the ministry belongs to God. It's more so saying that the ministry belongs to them. That mindset of ministry is not godly. And it certainly does not do the local church any good. When ministry becomes about a man or a woman or a a, a claim on the ministry, listen, uh, they are basing their call to ministry off of their personality. They're basing the church off of the personality of the pastor. When, When anybody talks about Gray Avenue, my desire, my hope, and my prayer is not that it would be known for me. It would be known because the gospel is preached here. It, it, it would be known because we love our community. We serve our neighbors. We, we, we bless each other as a congregation. I want people to, to know us by those things, not, not me and not, not an individual here. It's not about any of us. It's about Christ and Christ alone. But when the church becomes known for the pastor, it becomes a trap for some. Because, unfortunately... That pastor will one day die. Where'd the personality go? You see, rather than basing it off of a personality of a pastor or a ministry leader, we need to base the church off of, we need to found the church off of the person and work of Christ and who Jesus is. So here's where I want to go with this message this morning. And like I said, we're going to take a, a break. We're probably going to be out of Revelation for the next four, four weeks because we've got Palm Sunday coming up. We've got Good Friday. We've got uh, this massive holiday called Easter. Um, and then after that, um, we'll see where the Lord takes us. Um, but where I want to go with this message this morning is, um, is for us to understand as clearly as possible how God, according to Scripture, has called the church to function. Um, because I think sometimes we have um, assumed something that's not biblical. Because uh, I, I can tell you this much. The truth is, is that the church functions better and is more effective when, first of all, the whole congregation is involved in the proclamation of the gospel. I think sometimes we walk into a church and we're like, oh, I get to, I get to sit down. The pastor will do it all. The pastor will preach the gospel and I, you know, that's that's... Yes, part of my role. But Jesus was talking to his disciples, which his disciples would share the same message when, they, when Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's not just limited to me. That's not just limited to the ministry leaders. It's our assignment as believers of Christ, followers of Christ, is to share the gospel. But the church will function better and more effectively when we decide as a whole congregation that it's time to... to be actively involved in the proclamation of the gospel. So, in order for us to understand the the way that God has called the church to function, we first need to discover when the church became the church. Uh, Acts chapter 1, 
like we just read, is essentially where it started. And, and I know what you're thinking. Aren't you supposed to save this passage for after Easter? Like, it's after Easter, the Pentecost. Aren't you supposed to wait 50 days after that? Traditionally, sure. But we're getting a, a running start on it. Uh, because we need to be reminded of this in order for us to function as the church that God has called us to be. Uh, after Jesus rose from the dead, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says, He, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days, during the 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. So just to solidify the truth that Jesus wasn't in the grave anymore, uh, he appeared after his resurrection to many witnesses. There's one account in the gospel, if you remember, uh, the gospel writer Matthew gives where the disciples are in the upper room and it says, for the fear of the Jews, they lock the door. And as they're in there trying to uh, uh, come up with what is, what is our next move, guess who walks in? Jesus. Doesn't even knock, doesn't even say, hey, I'm, it's me. He just walks right in, in the door. Like as if the stone being rolled away wasn't enough, as if the linen cloth being folded up nicely uh, wasn't enough, Jesus walks through a door and says, guys, I'm not dead. Like, I, I, I'm alive. And so Jesus, as he is in the upper room with them, he says, and behold, in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. What was the promise? If you're familiar with Scripture, the promise was the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that it was to their benefit that Jesus would go so they can have the Holy Spirit. And he says, listen, guys, he's speaking to his disciples who were in that room. He says, Listen, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The promise was the Holy Spirit. And the only way the disciples could be effective without Jesus in the flesh is if God sent the third person of the Trinity to dwell inside of their hearts as followers of Christ. That was the only way. There was no other way that they could be effective. They couldn't be effective on their own. You've already have seen how many times Peter royally messed up. And so the Holy Spirit comes upon. And in Acts chapter uh, 1 verse 8 again, Jesus told the disciples what would happen when the Holy Spirit would come upon them. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8 it says, But you will, underline those two words, you will, Receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Without the Holy Spirit coming upon the believers, they would not be able to witness as Jesus would call them to. They would be ineffective, especially if they tried relying on their own strength. And so the church is born really as soon as the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples that were in the room and the disciples, as obedient as they could be, would go and preach the message of the gospel to all of Judea and Samaria until the end of the earth. But what do we see from from this passage? Uh, number one, God has designed followers of Christ or the church to be his witnesses, to be his witnesses. In this text, we see two promises. The first promise was that the Holy Spirit would come upon the believers. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The second one, the second promise is they would be witnesses. So there's two promises. Power of the Holy Spirit would come upon you. 
and you will be my witnesses in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But here's what it means to be a witness for Christ. It means that, honestly, you and I have come to grips with this, that life is no longer meant to live for your own pleasure, but to bring the gospel to the people around you. Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To truly understand what it means to be a witness means we must first understand the old way of living is gone. And a new life has begun because of what Jesus has done for us. But according to the Old or the New Testament, what does it mean to be a witness? To be a witness meant that you were testifying of a doctrine. It, was, it meant that you were telling others of this spiritual truth. It means that you were giving testimony to what Jesus taught. Essentially echoing the teachings of the Master. Remember when Jesus sent out the 70? He sent them out two by two. Just so you know, if you go out with us uh, to invite people uh, to our Easter service, you won't go alone, okay? Uh, because there's, there's strength in numbers. Um, anyways, these didn't go out to proclaim a message of their own. It, it, wasn't, like, it wasn't like, oh, well, let us just kind of tweak the message that Jesus gave us a little bit. We'll make it sound a little bit more appealing to people. no. They didn't mess with Jesus' teaching. They gave the people Jesus' teaching as Jesus wanted them to receive it. And, and it was hard. When you share the gospel, when you're being a witness, when you're testifying of the doctrine of Christ, not everybody's going to like it. Because testifying of that means you have to let them know that they're a sinner and they're going to hell. And they're like, I don't know about that one. But then there's the good news, right? Being a witness is also testifying to the fact that even though we are sinners, Jesus came to save us from our sin. Amen? So these two, or these 70, two by two, they went out and proclaimed that Jesus was their Lord and Savior and, and, and that uh, truth was found in Him and that He died for their sins or would die for their sins. But here's the application for us. If you're a follower of Christ, notice how I didn't say ministry leader, pastor, deacon. If you're a disciple of Christ, which if you've given your life to Christ, guess what you are? You're a disciple of Christ. So follower of Christ, disciple of Christ, your job, my job, your assignment, my assignment, your mission and my mission is to testify of who Jesus is to as many people as you can. However, please understand this too, that it is not your duty to act as the Holy Spirit. Don't do that. Uh, you see, when the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, the desire to share the gospel with others will be strong. You should have a desire to share the gospel. Uh, now, a spirit-filled Christian, listen, one who has been totally consumed with the Holy Spirit, who, who is born again, who has the Holy Spirit inside of him or her, or her uh, will have the desire to be used by the Lord to testify of who he is and what Jesus has done in the grace of God. Now, here's a question I have. You don't have to answer this. 
Why is it that we're so resistant to sharing the gospel? Trust me, I'm human as well. And there are times where I am resistant to sharing the gospel. And I'm sure there have been moments in your life where you're resistant when it comes to sharing the gospel. The first thing is, well, what if I come off weird? You probably will. Okay. What if they make fun of me? They probably will. Okay. But here's the the nice thing. If you're not acting as the Holy Spirit and you're allowing the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do, the outcome isn't dependent upon you. It's dependent upon him and the work that he is doing in the heart of this person that you're sharing the gospel with. So I got I got to share this story. Um, anybody just love getting scam calls? You, you, it, you just like that's what you live for. You, you get up in the morning and you can't wait to talk to these people who were try, are trying to get you better car insurance. Uh, anyways. Well, they've decided to start calling the church. And um, that gets pretty annoying. Uh, and I, this week, um, apparently we desperately need our building to be cleaned. Um, because they kept calling and calling and calling and calling and I kept answering. <laughs> and I probably shouldn't have because it led them on to think, oh, this guy's going to answer again. Maybe we can really get him. And so the last time I, I answered the call, uh, it was the same janitorial company and they were asking me questions and they kept asking me for my email and my phone number and all that stuff and I kept saying no. But I let them share and I kid you not, while I was listening to this person on the phone, I just felt this nudge, share the gospel. I was like, with a scammer? <laughs> and, and I put it off. But this guy just kept talking. Like normally, if I don't say anything, they'll hang up. He kept talking. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit just kept nudging me, share the gospel. But it's a scammer. Like, what good is it going to do? And, and so I, I let him finish his spiel, and, and, and he asked me one more time. He, sa- he says, can I have your email address? I said, no. But now that you've shared about your company, can I share about mine? Because we're Gray Avenue Christian Church, and, and I just would like to let you know, before you decide to go with us as one of your clients, if, you know, if you'd like to know what you're getting yourself into. And he says, hold on a moment. And there was that weird background music and everything. And his supervisor came on the phone. (laughs) I was like, wait a minute. I thought it was just the first guy that I was supposed to. And I didn't even get to the part of the gospel. He was just, hold on. And so the supervisor gets on the phone and he says, how can I help you? And, And I said, well, I just thought I'd be cordial enough to just let you know what we're all about and, you know, what what our aim is and all that stuff. He says, okay. And uh, I, I said, you know what the gospel is? And he was like, yes. Like, okay. It was awkward. <laughs> and, 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 and I said, well, do you know who Jesus is? And he goes, sir, I'm a Muslim. I'm not Christian. Boop. Hangs up the phone. The name of Jesus is powerful. I didn't get to the whole point about sharing the gospel and what he did, but I guarantee you they will call again. And when they do, (laughs) I'll be ready. Uh, But there are moments, all that to say is that we're so resistant. It's like, you you know what I'm talking about. You felt the nudge from the Holy Spirit before, and you put it off. You're resistant because it's, oh, it's not the right time. What if they die tomorrow? 
And, and, and you made the excuse, oh, I can't share the gospel with them. Think about it. What's at stake? Their eternity. If they're not a Christian, they're going to be eternally separated from Christ. You had the opportunity. I had the opportunity to share the gospel. Here's why I believe we're so resistant. Because we allow the flesh to dominate. We allow the flesh to decide what we should do and what we shouldn't do. We allow fear to creep in. We allow the unforeseen outcome to dictate our lack of sharing our faith. Listen, Jesus never said that we would be in control of the outcome of somebody's response to sharing the gospel. He just said, do it. He said, share the gospel. He said, preach the gospel. He didn't say, act as the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit take... Uh, you do the Holy Spirit's job. He said, no, you be obedient to the moving of the Holy Spirit and allow me to work through you and then the outcome you can just leave up to me. Jesus called us to be his witnesses. He never called his disciples to be responsible for the outcome of the preaching of the gospel. Just preach the gospel. And, and, and it's easier uh, said than done, I know. We've all come to a point where like, well, I need to go to Ray Comfort's Way of the Master School or I need to go to this evangelism conference. Listen, do you love Jesus? Do you follow Jesus? Do you know God's word? Do you know that he saved you? Listen, if you have a story, share it and God will use that story. Story, excuse me. But listen, he told us, Jesus, that when the Holy Spirit would come upon the disciples, they would receive the power. Now, if you're not trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit, of course you're going to be afraid. Of course you're going to come up with excuses. Of course you're going to say, I'll put it off until I'm ready. But when you choose to rely on the Holy Spirit, He will work through you. 2 Timothy, Timothy 1.7 For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, I can't say that word, but of power, Love and self-discipline. Do you see what God has given you if you are a believer? It says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Do you remember that when you're sharing the gospel? Do you remember that when you're witnessing to your neighbors or to your family members or to those uh, in, in, at your job? Do you remember that because you are a Christian, you are filled with the Holy Spirit in order to do what the Holy Spirit has called you to do? The daily prayer of the disciple of Christ should be this. Holy Spirit, come upon me so that I might testify to the truth of the gospel to the world around me. That should be our prayer. Holy Spirit, come upon me. Just like the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples. Now, there are three Greek prepositional phrases of the Holy Spirit. And we don't have time to get into that. But one of them is that the Holy Spirit would come upon you. It's this relationship that the Holy Spirit has with the believer that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. He'll be in you. He'll be upon you. He'll be around you. But listen, the Holy Spirit will give you the power that you need in order to share the, the gospel, to be an effective witness. Now, one of the very next things that we see in Scripture, when the church received the power of the Holy Spirit and after it filled the believers, was unity. 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 Acts 4.32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart. How many hearts? And one soul. How many souls? And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Here's the second 
point. God has called the church to function in unity. Amen? Amen. There's too much divisiveness in our world right now. The very place that we should be seeing unity is within the church. But one sign of a spirit-filled church, and I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about you. You and I make up the body of Christ. One sign of a spirit-filled church is the essence of unity. Now, I think we can all agree to this, that in biological families, we get upset with each other. We get frustrated with each other. We get uptight about seemingly petty things. Amen? (laughs) The same is true for the spiritual family. Because guess what? Even though we are the bride of Christ, we're still sinners. And sinners, wherever they go, they make a mess. See, churches argue over the dumbest things. Okay? Now, listen carefully. The reality is, is that when you and I, or the church, whatever church chooses to argue over things that have no eternal matter, the enemy is one happy camper. He's like, yeah, they're arguing over the carpet. I love it. Or the chairs and how pink they are. (laughs) Listen, if he can slip in through the cracks of a church and use little things to cause division, he's content. See, the enemy seeks to divide churches over the pettiest of things, over the smallest, minute things. And in my experience of ministry, I've been a part of churches that argue over some of the most ridiculous things, like where the communion table should be, or what coffee do we serve, or cookies. You sure we want to get Oreos and not the store brand? Dude, get Oreos, okay? Don't, don't, don't do the other option, or, or I've, I've been a part of churches who have become so territorial over a ministry. Like, that's mine. You can't have any say in it. You, you can't even touch it. You can't even look at it. If you give me any advice, I will shoot it down. I've been a part of churches where the lead pastor's wife has total control over every ministry. Or where some are unwilling to create a budget for youth ministry. Because, quite frankly, we got other more important things to worry about. Or, how about this one? Who live for what a former pastor said. Well, that's what our old pastor used to always say. Now, I'm not knocking any wise, godly pastor, but listen, when God wants to do a new work, he wants to do a new work. Listen, let me be totally transparent with you for a moment. The things I've mentioned and more, okay, none of these things will matter when we're face-to-face with Jesus. We aren't going to care about the chairs in the sanctuary. We're not going to care about the creamer, the coffee, or the cookies, okay? We're not going to ask Jesus the question of, well, why didn't we go with the Oreo cookies? Or why didn't we go with the coffee, this coffee or creamer? We're not going to care about where the pulpit was positioned or if there was a communion table. What will matter when we are face-to-face with Christ is not the material, but the immaterial. The things that we've read in Scripture, the things that we've heard preached, those will be the things that matter at the end of the day. What will, what will matter most to us is that we're finally face-to-face with Jesus. He doesn't care about the chairs. He doesn't care about your 
journal, notebook, what, whatever. Song of Solomon. When's the last time you read that book? It's very romantic. Okay, it's very uh, romantic. <laughs> Yet here's what we have to understand: is that this book, Song of Solomon, points to the relationship that Christ desires with His bride. Okay, but there's one part in in Song of Solomon. Actually, it's one of the verses that I quite frequently go to, especially when. I'm talking to somebody about marital issues or a couple or, or whatever. The Shulamite bride, right? So Solomon is just completely just caught up with her beauty, with just who she is. And I mean, it's pretty like, okay, Solomon, like, <laughs> I don't know if I would ever say that my wife's teeth look like sheep or anything like that, but <laughs> it's poetic, but. But she says something. The bride says something. She says, catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that spoil the vineyards. The bride is saying, remove those things that will come between us. She's desiring that because she, if, you, if you read Song of Solomon and you know about Solomon, there were a lot of things that grabbed Solomon's attention. And, and, and she's saying, get rid of them. Catch the foxes. They're going to spoil the vineyard. All that we've worked so hard for, all that we've strived for, they're going to come in and they're going to devour the vineyard. Remove them. Listen, church, this church, we ought to have the same cry. As the bride of Solomon cried out, we should be crying out, Lord, don't let anything come in between us. For you and I, together, there is a ton of things that divide us. But the main thing that unites us should be Jesus, and all the other things should be secondary. They shouldn't really even matter at all, but that should be our prayer, is that God, keep the little foxes out of the vineyard. So, what are the signs of a united church? They're of how many hearts? How many souls? The heart in Scripture, it refers to the seat of feeling or the seat of impulse or the seat of affection or desire. A united church, listen, will have the same desire, which simply put should be, number one, lift the name of Jesus on high. Number two, to know him deeply together. Together. Listen, all of us are accountable to each other. All of us. If you see a brother or sister who is down, your responsibility and my responsibility is, is to go to them and say, hey, are you okay? Are, are you doing all right? To bear one another's burdens. But the one soul that is referred to here it speaks of our immaterial life, our eternal part of us. A united church will have the same eternal perspective. They will recall time and time again that this life is temporal and eternity is not far off. Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has put eternity into man's heart. Each of us, believer or not, longs for something. Uh, from the time we're born, we long for something. We have this, this, this desire, this, this hunger and thirst. And many of us have experienced chasing after other things to try to get that, that longing to go away. The longing you and I have 
is for eternity. It even says he has put eternity into man's heart. But where is your eternity? Listen, the only thing that can satisfy that longing that you may have, that desire that you may have, is to know Christ. To know Jesus. To, to know that eternity in heaven is not far off when you place your faith in Christ. To know that this longing that you've had for years can be totally satisfied with knowing Jesus. For, United, for a united church, the truth is collective. It's not something they dream of. It's not something that they have board meetings about and they discuss how they can fix up heaven and heaven doesn't need to be touched by us. The truth is collective in that it is something that the church knows that is a very soon reality. We've been studying the book of Revelation and we, we can understand, uh, and especially with signs of the times, in our day and age, eternity is not far off. It's not. So if you're a follower of Christ this morning, if you're a disciple of Christ, your desire should be for heaven. But if you still have an appetite for this world, then I would suggest maybe you really haven't crucified the flesh. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. R.C. Sproul said, The expectation of seeing Christ by sight in heaven must inform how we live by faith here on earth. God has called the church to function in unity in our desire to know Jesus now and for all of eternity. And listen, if eternity does not cause you to live differently Eternity is not on your mind. Eternity with Jesus is not this distant thing. It is very near. But what does this look like for you? If you have genuinely given your life to Christ, you've surrendered to Him as Master and Lord, the appetite you have for this world should become less and less. The things of this world should look disgusting in comparison to who Jesus is. Now, I'm sure you've realized this, but the world in all of its glory, one day it's going to pass away. Jesus even said, uh, the earth will pass away. Only the kingdom of God will remain. So it means for us, when it comes to unity, and especially with having eternity on our minds, it means that you're doing whatever you can to draw closer to Jesus and further away from this world. Do you know how much easier it is to draw closer to Jesus when you have a solid group around you? When, when people are encouraging you to get into God's word, when people are saying, man, have you thought about just bringing it before, before the Lord? Have you thought about talking uh, or, or seeking advice from this godly person? It, it matters, Okay. Having a group of people around you to point you closer to Christ makes a huge difference. But for us personally, it means that what you're doing now is you're preparing yourself for eternity. It means that you are doing whatever you can to draw closer to Jesus and further away from this world. So here's the question. What part of this world are you holding on to today? Is it materialism? Is it a relationship? Is it finances? Is it you fill in the blank? What part of the world are you holding on to? I can tell you this much. If you're holding on to anything of this world, you're essentially holding yourself 
back from the Lord. James 4.8. Here's a promise that we should all remember. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a promise for you. That's a promise for, for the follower of Christ. And listen, you may feel incredibly distant from God right now. You may feel like your one strong relationship with the Lord has gotten weak. It's not because the Lord has moved. It's because you have pulled back from pursuing the Lord. You've chosen worldly things over the things of the, of, of the kingdom. You've chosen to, to satisfy the appetite of the flesh rather than get close to Christ. And you're wondering, God, why are you so far away? Well, because you moved. You moved closer to the things of this world. But when you pursue the Lord in the every day of your life, every moment of your life, you will discover this, that God is the God of grace. God is the God of peace. God is the God of mercy and love and forgiveness and power and second chances. So here's my encouragement to you this morning, church. Draw near to God. Don't run after the things of the flesh. Don't run after the things of this world. Listen, they will trap you. But another sign of a united church Somebody told me they fixed the clock. I'm not, okay, that's fixed. Yeah, Cliff, thank you. Uh, we're almost done, hang tight. Number three, there is no possessiveness when it comes to ministry. Another sign of a united church, another sign of a spirit-filled church is there is no possessiveness when it comes to ministry. Acts 4.32, it says this, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. One of my biggest pet peeves, okay? I'm letting you in on a little secret. It's not a secret anymore since I'm letting you in on it. <laughs> and you can tell, okay? You can tell. Is when you walk into a church and immediately it smells like the place is more so known for the personality of the pastor rather than the person of Christ and the body of Christ. We've all been to one of those churches maybe in, in our, our church history, but it's where the pastor is set up on a pinnacle. Like, he's the savior. The man will disappoint you. And that was the problem that was happening in, happening in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. What I mean, Paul speaking, is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. God did not design the church to function off the personality of the pastor. The early church understood this. They saw Peter preach on, on, on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 souls came to Christ. But they were not fixated on, on Peter. Peter was a vessel. He, he was a vessel that God used and they weren't territorial. It clearly states that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They weren't like, that's mine. I would do the Lord of the Rings Gollum voice, but I can't. <laughs> they, they would just gravitate towards it as, as you can't have it. You, you, you can't be a part of this ministry because it's mine. They counted what they had as what had been given to them by God, which ultimately, guess who, guess who uh, uh, the stuff belonged to in the first place? God. A sign of a united church is that they understand that while God has placed a man as a shepherd... 
Okay? God has designed the church to, to have somebody oversee it as a as pastor, uh, a godly man, as the ch- leader of the church. Listen, it still does not make that man the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. He is the one that the pastor should receive order and direction from Colossians 1.18. He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. Pretty clear. If that pastor has taken a seat where only Christ should be placed, that pastor is in sin. Not only that, the church is as well. If that church continues to allow this pastor uh, the rule and reign of the church when it's not his to belong with, that church is in sin for allowing that very thing to happen. We must never assume the position of Christ. It should never be our responsibility to act as the head of the church. Any pastor uh, is an under-shepherd. Under the chief shepherd. Now there's two more points. They're, they're short. For when a church puts their pastor on a pinnacle, uh, they, they put him in the, the prime spot. First of all, that, that pastor will lose its, his servant, servant leadership. He, he will like to lead, but he will not want to have any part in being a servant. Listen, what did Jesus come to do? Matthew 28, verse 20. For even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? Serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. The sign of a unified church is this. Number four, the people seek to serve where there is a need. Some of you can already tell where I'm going with this. (laughs) I believe oftentimes, though, you and I choose not to serve. I've been in the same spot. Because we don't want to expend the energy that we could be using on something else. I might step on some toes. You might get upset with me. I'll give you my email. I won't give the scammer my email. But let me ask you this question. Does serving at your home church matter to you? If it does and you're not serving, then I would question, does your church really matter to you? Think about it. So often we see people in churches claiming that their contribution is just by them filling a seat. It's saying, you know what? My seat's right there, okay? Back at our home, one of our churches in SoCal, Yeah, we had our seats. That was our seat. If you sat there, we'd give you a funny look, right? I'm sure you've all experienced that here before. Anyways, but here's the thing. So often we see people in churches claiming that their contribution is just by filling the seat. In all actuality, what that mentality breeds is, what can I take? What can I take from the church? Rather than, what can I give? You see, I believe there is a give-take. You should receive. You should be poured into. But there's also the other side of that. You should pour into others. What happens when we decide to, to come to church and we don't actively serve, we're just getting poured into and poured into. Listen, that really does us no good. We become spiritually obese. We become unhealthy because we have no outlet to pour out into. We need to share the Word of God with others. 
It's not enough just to come to church and say, that's my service. We must serve the way that Jesus himself served others. The other day I was driving my kids to school and on a church sign, Ben would appreciate this, it said, Jesus is coming back, look busy. (laughs) That's our issue. We know that Jesus is coming back and we look busy. We know Jesus is coming back and to make ourselves look busy, we come to church. We, we even show up like two minutes before the service and uh, then we leave right after where nobody can even say boo to us, okay? We just, okay, I'm looking busy. I'm at church doing my thing. Here's my challenge to us this morning and please understand that, that this is coming from a place of, uh, of, of grace, of love, of care, of compassion because I know there are people in here that want to see that want to see God do a work in other people's lives. But God doesn't just want to use the pastor, the elders, the board. He wants to use us all. My challenge to you this morning is this, if you're not serving, it's time to serve. If you're just coming to church to take, it's time to come to church to give as well. Listen, being the church is not just about being poured into. It's about pouring into others. The last sign of a unified church is constant gospel proclamation. A church that is unified understands that it is unified because of Jesus and because of what Jesus has done and who he is. This will cause, should cause a church to constantly want to proclaim the gospel message with all of the neighborhood. Now you might be saying, well, that's a perfect church. There's no such thing as a church that has all their ducks in a row like that. This church is not perfect. You've heard it said plenty of times, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it, okay? There's no such thing as a church that has all their ducks in a row. And you might have had that thought as I was talking about what a unified church looks like, what, what God has called us according to Scripture. But Jesus never said we couldn't make the effort and attempt to live out that which we have been called to. That's the challenging part of being a disciple of Christ, is living out what he's called us to. So listen, church, in closing. Let's follow Jesus together. Into all that he has for us. And let's keep our eyes on him and let's encourage one another and pray for one another. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, God. Thank you that you've promised that the Holy Spirit would come and the Holy Spirit is here. Lord, you're a promise keeper and you promised that the Holy Spirit would lead us, that would guide us. You would use the Holy Spirit to comfort us. But there are so many times where we have, have, as a collective group, relied more on our strength, more on our knowledge and intellect and all that kind of stuff. We've relied on that more than we have relied on the, the Holy Spirit. And Lord, for some of us, maybe this morning this message Um, doesn't sit well. Lord, we're not here to be comfortable. 
I pray that you would keep using your word to ruffle our feathers. Lord, thank you that your ways are higher than ours, that you are above all. God, I pray that you would give us all a renewed desire to follow you and to serve our neighbors. Lord, we love you. And it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.